Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the podcast, I welcome friend of the pod, Brian Coe, host of VeloWorthy. Brian's been covering the sport of cycling for many years, originally with his podcast, The SoCal Cyclist, focused on the Southern California cycling scene. Brian's a relatively recent gravel convert, but has certainly been around the off-road cycling world for quite some time. Under his VeloWorthy YouTube channel, Brian's been covering the sport of gravel cycling for the last couple of years. And what I've really appreciated about his coverage is it really gives you a feel of the event. He not only interviews athletes and covers the expos at some of these larger events, but he spends the time and energy to get out there on course. So if you follow him on social media, you can get some of those great real-time updates right in the middle of the events that he's attending. So super excited to catch up with Brian and have you get to know VeloWorthy. Before we jump in, just a personal note, for those of you keeping track, I took a little bit of a break, actually more of a break than I thought I was going to here in July and the first part of August. I just needed some time to focus on other things and the podcast, unfortunately, had to take a back seat for the moment, but I'm excited to get back into it. We've got a number of interviews already recorded, ready to get published. So we'll get back on our weekly cadence. I appreciate all the support. And for those of you who reached out to me and missed me, thank you. I'm back. Um, It's a labor of love producing the Gravel Ride podcast. So I wanted to make sure I was stoked and energized to continue doing so. Before we jump into this conversation with Brian, I do need to thank our friends at Hammerhead and the Hammerhead Karoo 2 computer. It's the most advanced GPS cycling computer I've got in the garage. I've very much enjoyed my Karoo 2 over the last couple of years. And some of the things I love about it are the mapping. It kind of feels like my mobile phone. I can pinch and zoom. And with the free global maps, I can kind of cover everywhere I'm likely to ride my bike. I remember heading over to Europe at the end of last year to Girona, and I simply downloaded the maps for Spain, and I felt every bit as informed as I do in the United States. Hammerhead keeps the device updated with bi-weekly software updates, so you know new features are always on the way. One of those new features that dropped a while back was the climber feature. It's one that I use almost every single ride even in the rides in my local area here on Mount Tam. I just simply love to understand both the gradients that I'm going to experience, but also the time to top. It's pretty fun knowing what I have ahead of me, even on my local terrain, especially now as I'm a bit more out of shape than I'd like to be. So things are taking a little bit longer to get to the top. Anyway, for a limited time, our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Karoo 2, simply visit hammerhead.io right now and use the po- promo code the gravel ride to get yours today. It's an exclusive limited time offer, so don't forget to use the promo code the gravel ride. Just put that heart rate monitor in your cart alongside your Karoo 2 at hammerhead.io and boom, that heart rate monitor is yours. This thank you to our friends at Hammerhead for sponsoring the show this week. 
And with that said, let's jump right in to my conversation with Brian Coe of VeloWorthy. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's so good to be here. I am so excited to be on your podcast. Uh, you know, we, we've we been both been doing this for a while, but you've obviously surpassed many of the hobbyists in the in the cycling podcast scene. So you're definitely the authority when it comes to podcasts, cycling podcasts. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, as we were reminiscing offline a little bit, your original podcast, The SoCal Cyclist, was one of those that was in my steady rotation as I started getting into listening to podcasts and thinking about doing one myself. Well, thanks. I'm. Uh, do I get a royalty from each episode? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how cycling media works, so you can get a royalty, but it's not going to do much for you. Yeah, it, it'll be it'll it'll be uh, fractions of a cent, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, Brian, as you know, we all start the show. I love to learn, like, where'd you grow up, and how did you find cycling originally? You know, ironically, you know, I'm kind of before Veloworthy is known as SoCal Cyclist or SoCal Cyclist Podcast. And I've ridden all over Southern California, LA, Verdugo Hills, San Diego, mostly. I'm based out of North County. Uh, but I actually grew up in Northern California, um, okay. where I think I'll, I'm a little bit biased. I think Northern California, when I was growing up, had a bigger and more robust cycling scene than Southern California, which was mostly crit heavy. Uh, so I grew up in the flat heat of Sacramento and, um, you know, I think when I was probably two years old, my dad took me, my brother and all my cousins to this grassy park area called Ansel Hoffman park and just said, I'm going to teach you all how to ride a bike in one day. And we just, you know, the age gap between me and my cousins is about five years and I was the youngest and we all learned the exact same day how to ride bikes. And then so like seven, six years later, uh, I entered my first bike race. Um, I was eight years old and it was okay. a BMX race and I just loved it. You know, BMX was very, very big in the eighties and, uh, you know, the movie E.T. had just come out and there's the scene where they take E.T. on the bike and they're like going down the hills and stuff. And I wanted to be Elliot from E.T. I even remember wearing a red hoodie with the hood on just so I could <laughs> pretend to be Elliot from E.T. And then when I was nine years old, I got introduced to uh, road cycling uh, by my cousins and they all took this trip on the bike from L.A. to San Diego. I was too young to go. Okay. So I was there, but my brother and my cousins, three of them all went and they were, you know, 12, 13 years old Amazing. Uh, and, and they all did it. And then since after that, I was like, I got to get into bikes. Luckily there was this, this race. It was the biggest race in America at the time, equivalent to like the tour of California was, it was called the Coors Classic and it went through my town. And it was the first time I actually got to meet Greg LeMond in person. And, you know, I'm a little kid trying to get an autograph and I'm like tugging at his Lavi Claire jersey. And he turns around and just gives me a smile because he was being surrounded by people. He had just won the Tour de France uh, for the first time. And uh, since that point, cycling has, has been the only sport 
I've ever really known other than like high school cross country and track. Okay. Interesting. So while you were in high school, I'm no, I know a lot of kids sort of end up leaving the sport in high school because of social pressures or other sports. Sounds like you kind of maintained and were still riding at that point. Well, I think it was, it comes down to luck because I was just born at the right time. Like when I was a junior, I remember races being so full that they'd have to have heats. And it was actually cool to be a young junior cyclist. This is, I'm a few years younger than the Lance Armstrong sort of generation of guys like him yeah. and Hincapi and a few others. Um, but when we were little, we all idolized being on like the 7-Eleven team or the postal service team. And it was actually cool. Today, you see more of like the older, older helmet mirror, bandana wearing crew that maybe thrived, peaked in those days. But I think we're seeing a resurgence with, with gravel and, and a few other disciplines within the yeah. sport. Certainly with youth. I mean, as you know, in Northern California, we have big NICA league. So youth mountain biking at the high school level is insane up here. I, I, the Mount Tam school, high school team here in my town of Mill Valley, there's 60 kids on that team, which is an unbelievable number. And some of these kids are elite level athletes by the time they're leaving their senior year. Yeah. It's uh Nike is becoming the new collegiate cycling. Cause all we had back in the day was if you're good enough in high school, you went to a college that had a cycling team. And then if you were good enough to race the A category, which was like equivalent to cat one, two, uh, you might be able to get a pro contract if you did well at a national championship. Yeah. But Nike now has totally replaced that. And the kids are younger. They're more talented. And even though bikes are getting more expensive and equipment is more expensive, they're able to find ways to, to do that. I remember my first bike race as a junior. I think I was 14 or 15. I did the Mount Tam hill climb. Yeah. And I was on junior gears and one of the kids that won, he was on like the, I remember he was on the full team, Richie, uh, red, white, and blue kit. And he had a mountain bike that was rigged up to be like, had skinny tires and he blew the doors off of everyone. But, um, I just remember thinking I can't compete with this level of talent for all the Bay area kids. They're just head and shoulder. Cause they can all climb me in Sacramento. I was okay on the flats. And in crits, but you go to the Bay Area and they can just, their little miniature, you know, Alberto Contadors just climbing up the mountains. It's totally <laughs> did you end up. Did you end up going to a university that had a cycling program? Yeah. So uh, when I was in high school, you know, I, I looked at different colleges. I ended up going to Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff that had uh, a really big cycling team. In fact, um, the first collegiate national mountain bike championship I did. And uh, the team got third in the Omnium behind, I think it was like CU Boulder and Stanford. And NAU is not known for a whole lot, but Flagstaff itself as a city is, sure. is a great place for mountain biking. And just, it's at, it's at 7,000 feet altitude. Yeah. And so you're, you're living at 7,000 feet. You're training at eight to 9,000 feet. And then you just, you have so much uh, ability to do a lot. And so I actually abandoned road racing and went through like three years of a mountain bike phase. 
I was just um, going to ask you that. Yeah. Yeah. Rode a Bri- Bridgestone, uh, fully rigid uh, mountain bike, 26 inch wheels. And then my suspension, it was called a soft ride suspension stem. Uh, Brian, don't and... even talk to me about that. It's painful. <laughs> yeah. I had I'm one like, of those. Jackhammer down these, down these like breaking bumps. And I'm like, Ugh. and uh, I, but at the time, like it was that, or like, I think rock shocks had just come yeah. out with like the Judy or something. Yeah. And so uh, I did three national championships. Um, the hardest one I ever did was in Kentucky, uh, a young up and comer from Fort Lewis. His name was Todd Wells, uh, lapped me <laughs> on the last lap. And I'm like, who is this weirdo? And, uh, he ended up being one of the most dominant mountain bikers in America after that. So <laughs> I, I hung up my mountain bike cleats after that point. So let's fast forward a number of years. You find yourself in Southern California. It sounds like you were still racing criteriums recognizing you're not going pro, but still like many of us just loving the sport and continuing to do it. Tell me about like the transition from that to starting to talk about it on the podcast. Well, well, I think anyone who grows up with cycling needs, especially from a young age needs to take a break. So I, I moved to Southern California just because I could, I could ride my bike year round, but then I ended up falling in love with the ocean and I, and I sold all my bike stuff and I ended up taking up surfing for like the next eight years straight. And okay. all I did was surf. And I even remember taking like my friends who were like pro cyclists out surfing and then they get hooked. Like my friend, uh, Alex Candelario, who was on Optum and Rally moved here and I was like his motor pacing guy. But I'm like, hey, there's an ocean right here like a hundred feet that way, let's go get surfboards. And then he ended up loving it so much. He moved to Hawaii (laughs) starting big Island bike tours there. Um, so I, I, I took a break from the sport. I, you know, got a little burned out. I was a little, uh, you know, it was during the whole doping EPO, you know, post live strong kind of mess. And I, still followed the tour and stuff on TV, but I, I just wasn't racing anymore. And then yeah. one day, like, you know, in 2012, I just got, I, I used my beach cruiser because everyone in Southern California has beach cruisers. And I just started doing five miles, 10 miles, 20 miles, up to 30 miles on a beach cruiser that weighs about 55 pounds with a basket and a lock. And then, uh, I told myself one day, okay, cool. I'm on a beach cruiser. I'm riding in board shorts and a t-shirt and a helmet. And there's this climb in Southern California called Torrey Pines. And I, I said to myself, okay, if I can pass a guy in a real bike kit and a real road bike, I'm going to buy myself a road bike. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. So I, I finally saw somebody in a D in like a team kit. I think it was the Swami's team, which is a big team in Southern California caught and passed him. I was so gassed up at the top. I remember he said something to me. I think it was a compliment. My bike, it wasn't a single speed. It was a three speed internal hub. And then next day I got a road bike and started racing. And then the first crit I entered, I think it was like masters. I got, I got 13th place. And then I was like 13th place with no training, but still the skills. And then yeah. I started doing more and more and more and cat it up and then started doing the 
the 35 plus masters, which is uh, probably as fast as the pro one, two uh, guys. I mean, a lot of them are ex pros themselves and just started doing that. And then was having so much fun, decided to create a podcast talking to all my friends about uh, bike racing and stuff like that. Nice. Nice. Yeah. To your point, like in California, the master's class, like there's so many great riders and ex-pros scattered across California. You hop into a master's category and you may very well be racing against an ex-pro. Oh yeah. Like I remember I was fighting somebody's wheel just so I could draft behind his name's Ivan Dominguez. He's the Cuban missile. Just because I wanted to look at his calves. That's all I wanted to do and be like, oh, what gear is he using? And he's like the slow churn, you know, opposite of like spin to win, just mashing the gear. And I was just staring at his calves going, this is so cool. Ivan Dominguez, you know, former multi-time, you know, crit and road race champion. Uh, and I'm in the same race as him. And yeah. stuff like that is just is super cool. Amazing. So you, you're, you start the SoCal Cyclist to talk to your friends and just kind of explore another creative outlet as you've got a young child in, at the home, right? Yeah, well, at the time, and again, this is in 2016, there wasn't a whole lot of cycling podcasts. And the ones that did exist were very um, tech heavy. Like they focused on yeah. disc brakes and stuff like that, which is great. But I wanted to focus on me and one guest every week for 52 weeks and to see if I could actually do it. But and and again, this is uh, people physically coming over to my house and <laughs> recording. So it's the most inefficient way possible. And so uh, I, I I met that goal. I I don't know why I even did it, but I uh, you know it started out as as my friends in the first few episodes, and then by the last, it was you know a lot of the top people in the sport. So I think it gained a lot of momentum after that. Yeah, and I can't recall how I originally found and discovered your podcast, but even before you rebranded to Veloworthy, I was a listener, as you know. And when we connected at that first Sea Otter, I think we were saying it might have been 2018, mm-hmm. I was sort of fanboying you because I knew you'd done a <laughs> lot of episodes, you're putting good content out there, um, and it was fun to just connect with another podcaster to just trade insights because as you allu- alluded to... The technology we were using back then was pretty rudimentary and difficult compared to what we're able to use today. Yeah, you're right. Like whenever we record or put something out there, not just in podcasting, but in videos or anything, all you're staring at are numbers. So when you see somebody in person, you're like, oh, wow, somebody actually, this isn't all just a facade. Like somebody actually is listening and we're talking about in person. So I think that's so cool. I mean, to this day, you know, most recently I was at Unbound um, and I I was so flattered and kind of validated that people would be like, oh, I watch your race coverage or your YouTube channel. And it just kind of blows me away. And I'm like, oh, really? You watch it? That's cool. And then they talk about it and stuff. So uh, it still blows my mind. And I, I love that kind of thing. It's cool. So- so it's interesting in talking and getting a little bit more of your backstory to learn that, you know, you had that mountain bike period in your life when you were back in Flagstaff, then you come back to the road, doing your thing, start podcasting, COVID hits. I know you decided to kind of put the brakes on 
the podcast for a little while. I'm curious in that sort of interim period from 2020 to now, it sounds like you've really kind of discovered gravel as being something that both suits you kind of professionally with what you're doing with Veloworthy, but also just liking the the vibe of the community and the style of riding. Yeah. I mean, 2020, you know, if, if everything shut down and there's no more races or even like, I remember the group rides were a fraction of the size they were, yeah. uh, why not do gravel where it's out in the open? It's mostly unsanctioned unless you sign up for something. And, uh, I think the timing of everything just kind of worked, um, gravel. And I think gravel events kind of really took off between 2020 and now. And I think it appeals to so many people, including myself, because the rules are kind of unwritten. I mean, if I tried to do this with a road background or a road focus, it would be 10 times more red tape to go to an event, especially like a UCI world tour event. Cause I, I have gone to like uh, the tour de France and um, Amgen tour of California. And just to go through those channels, it's very tradition based. Yeah. Um, I, I interviewed one writer, stuck a microphone in his face, Nathan Haas. He's, he's in gravel now actually, but yeah. at the time he, I think he was on like Katusha and he had just finished the stage and I just asked him a question and he reaches toward my lanyard with my media credential and he looks at it and goes, who am I talking to? <laughs> it didn't even occur to me to like show him my badge. But if I did that at a gravel race, they'd be like, who are you trying to fool? Just talk to me. Like it, there yeah. doesn't need to be this vetting process. Um, so, so I think gravel gives that kind of freedom. So we don't, so the listener doesn't learn, lose the thread here. Let's talk about Velo Worthy and what you're working on today, because it's not a podcast anymore. No, I, God, I, I need to get back into podcasting because I miss it so much. And I'm so excited. Just being on a podcast like energizes me so much. But so Velo Worthy is primarily uh, a digital media brand where, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, I make videos and put them up on YouTube. Um, but the, the thing about it is I've found this weird niche uh, with my brand that not many other brands are doing. Um, you're either, most people, you know, if you're like Tyler Pierce, aka vegan cyclist, you're a vlogger or you, you focus on yourself and your accomplishments. Other writers do that as well. Um, Adam Roberge has his own channel, for example. Alexi has his own channel, for example. So if you're not that, you're either uh, uh, working for a media brand. So if you work for Envy or something, you're just doing Envy content at these events. But yeah. right now, there's really nothing that captures the holistic view of an event where you're, ca you're not beholden to one writer necessarily or one brand. You're just trying to cover everything, which is a lot of work. But I think there's something to be said to sort of capture an unbiased view of what goes on at cycling events and just seeing things, how they unfold. Yeah. I think that's the thing that I take away from your videos is that you really do get the sense and feeling of the event. It's not a, an overly packaged, overly produced look at the entirety of the event. You really do 
because you're on the ground, because you're moving through the course, you're capturing footage that's just feels real. Like you're seeing the mud on the tires and when it comes to unbound, you're seeing the jockeying for water at some of the stations, you're seeing how the riders are handling their pits, everything. And I just feel like as a viewer, you do get a really strong sense of what it's like to be there versus this overly glamorized kind of prepackaged view of what the race weekend experience looked like. Well, first of all, I'm just not good enough to make something highly produced because <laughs> <laughs> that takes a lot of talent, you know, to get that nice, you know, transition effect or whatever. But all kidding aside, though, I really like um, being in the moment. It, you're kind of up close and personal. And, and the thing about gravel racing, the biggest flaw is it's not good for spectating. Yeah, You start and then you finish either in the same place as the start or a different area. I mean, at least in road racing, it's criteriums and you can just watch lap after lap, have it unfold. But with gravel, it's so hard to watch. Um, and so I know that if I film for 10 hours straight, that's kind of boring. Uh, no one's going to watch that. But if I yeah. condense it into less than an hour or 45 minutes or even a half an hour, um, it can really capture the things that are unfolding. And unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that my footage was going to be, you know, used for feed zone drama or finish line drama or any kind of drama really. But the riders are not shy out on course. They'll ask me, what's the time gap? They'll ask me how many guys are ahead. Who's in that break? They're asking, they're not asking for directions or anything. And I do follow all the rules of um, the race. So if a rider needs assistance and we're not allowed to give it, I don't give it. I just record. Um, so I think the relationship that I versus, uh, you know, a, a local news channel has, uh, at least knowing and following the sport and knowing the writers and how it's unfolding and posting up at the feed zones, capturing what may or may not happen, uh, whether people wait up or they just hit the gun and go for it, yeah. uh, makes for good, good video. Yeah. And I think as a fan of the sport, your types of content just help fill the gaps. Like we might see throughout the day, the social media coverage, but the clips are qu quite quick and much to people's chagrin because it's so hard to get coverage out there. You're just not seeing it in the way you want. So you don't necessarily understand what happened in the race until after the fact. And I was enjoying this morning watching your Unbound video because it just sort of added levels of detail and little bit longer clips of content to really get a feel. You know, I, obviously many of us have read about the mud conditions in this year's Unbound. And it wasn't until I saw some of your, your video that I could sort of understand, oh yeah, it's that peanut buttery type mud where it looks glossy until you put your tire into it. And then it just sinks down a couple inches and it sticks to absolutely everything. Yeah, this this year's Unbound wasn't necessarily the the dirtiest, but I would say that section of mud made the race. Uh, I, I would say it determined who won and lost in that first eleven miles. Uh, but you know, again, you can have the debate of you just got to be hard and power through it, and if everyone's going through it, then you shouldn't complain or 
do you reroute it last minute and make some changes so it's actually more of an open right where you're you're riding your bike you're not running five yeah. miles since most cyclists hate running anyway <laughs> but yeah like i i just i think you know i, I try and show and capture what people would hopefully want to see. So it's stuff like the mud and, and the pit stops, especially this year, who's getting a bike wash, who's not, uh, who's, you know, there's a little section of Sophia that went through the pit stop and it got two and a half million views on TikTok, just the 60 seconds of it with wow. people going everything from why can't she switch bikes to uh, why does she need to power wash her bike at all? Like, so it's a lot of it is curiosity. A lot of it is, okay, this is what I heard, what happened. I want to actually see it. So yeah. um, then, it, it, it's hard to, to get in those areas though. And you've, you know, through a lifetime of cycling and connections you have, you clearly have a good rapport with a lot of these athletes. And it was interesting as that video opened up and, and you're speaking to some of the athletes, I, I thought that was cool. And then you, you do do like morning of start line commentary. And I think there was one woman who said something like, you know, well, I'm glad it didn't, it's not raining right now, or it seems kind of dry. And I thought that statement is not going to live well. Yeah. Well, the thing is too, as much as I have, you know, I think this is my fifth unbound. Kansas is like Hawaii. The weather just changes on a dime. So it could be sunny, perfectly sunny, not a cloud. And then they just roll in. Um, and a lot of people who aren't from Kansas just aren't used to that. Like even me, I should know to bring galoshes and uh, a poncho with me and a plastic wrap for my camera. But I, I didn't because I'm like, oh, the weather looks fine, you know, because we're in California. It rarely changes that drastically. Uh, so, yeah, I think the relationship I have with the writers is solid. I try not to to burn people for the sake of burning people. I, I had a good talk with some of the more well-seasoned journalists. And I said, when do you, when do you know when to publish something and when not to? Like in the case of Lance Armstrong, no reporter reported anything about him until only one reporter did. And then everybody did. And they said, look, if you want to burn somebody, you have to do it if it's for the greater good of the sport. So if you know somebody's doing something nefarious, like cutting the course or cheating or taking drugs or drafting off of a vehicle, you should probably document that and mention that and show that. Yeah. Don't don't not do it just because you're friends with them and they ask you not to do it. Right. Yeah, Which is always hard because you're like, okay, if I do this, that means you're never going to probably want to interview with me again. So that's that's something I have to decide on the fly. Yeah, that's the balance. You talked about sort of your efforts to make Velo Worthy this video project that people can enjoy on YouTube. You also talked about how you've been excited about coming to Gravel over the last couple of years. What does the summer look like for you? What are the types of things that you want to document this year? Well, I'm learning that I'm not able to sustain what I'm doing on VeloWorthy unless we have an Unbound every single weekend, or at least a level of an event the size of Unbound every single weekend. Yeah. So I'm actually learning that, again, this is a complete shock to me that brands will actually reach out to me and say, okay, we want you to review this 
tire or <laughs> thinking that I'm some sort of expert just because I go to these events. But uh, yeah, it's kind of cool. Like I'm learning the tech side of it all and doing videos where uh, I'm reviewing saddles or sunglasses or something um, where, you know, in my opinion, I review something say sunglasses based on how they look <laughs> versus like the, the technical prowess of it. And so that's always cool because it, it forces me to just expand what I'm doing. And, and, you know, you have to have this healthy balance between what you're passionate about versus what people want to see. And if they don't line up, then you have to make some decisions. But, um, you know, when, when I'm gr interested in growing Velo worthy, it depends on how I define growth and what I want that to be. Because if I could, I could be another channel where I'm just doing all tech. And some people love that. But for me, I like the human story. I like the human yeah. drama of it all. Yeah. So fun. I personally think that's more interesting as well. Yeah. And then maybe show like what tires they're running at sure. the same time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> so it's not mutually exclusive. Exactly. I mean, there's the personal element of like why I chose this tire for this particular event and why it was successful or unsuccessful as a choice. So what's, yeah, what's next? So you're out at Unbound and I know you'd mentioned to me offline that you've got a bunch of gravel events you want to cover this year. Yeah. So in between Unbound and the events I'm doing, I have it, I have this like glass wall on my wall here that I take a pen and, and write to. And I have like a whole video queue and one's on doing a tire review, uh, a review of uh, the new uh, specialized Crux gravel bike that I'm trying to convert into an all-in-one bike. Um, and then I have uh, Foco Fondo in Fort Collins. I'm going to a small gravel race, but probably the most fun you'll ever have on two wheels. Uh, Whitney and Zach Allison put it on and they have such a good pulse of what makes cycling events fun. Um, doing that, there's Leadville, uh, which is mountain biking, but not super technical because a lot of the lifetime athletes do it. And then Steamboat, SBT is the next week after that. And then there's also Montana, uh, Mammoth Tough, sporting the Mammoth Tough t-shirt. And Love then... There's national gravel, national inaugural championships, which we'll see how that even works. Some people may be like, hey, this is awesome. And other people might say it's killing the spirit of gravel the minute USA Cycling gets involved. So we'll see. So when you're out at these events, are you going to sort of follow a similar format where you'll capture some athlete interviews, capture as much of the course as you can to kind of give people the experience? Yeah, so I actually plan it all out ahead of time. I use, you know, I have a Google sheet doc. I type in each day shot lists for everything. I'm very methodical, you know, charge up all my batteries, clear my and format all my memory cards. I have all my equipment out there. I work on logistics. I get in touch with the athletes ahead of time and we plan, okay, we're going to meet at this time at this location. We're going to sit down for five minutes and talk about this thing. And then when you get there, you know, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> and then something could happen. It could rain. Uh, the athlete could be like, I don't feel like showing up. 
I've run into just every logistical thing you can. And so when you're there, you have to adjust on the fly and be like, okay, like at Unbound, there's this whole thing I did with Rebecca Ferringer where I didn't know she was going to get sixth and she's this big personality in gravel. Uh, and she just saw me and she's like, Hey, come walk with me. And I followed her and we went to get a race number at registration. And I just started documenting that. And then I was like, well, why don't you just come over for dinner the night before bring Sarah, Max, her friend. They're both like super solid in gravel. They came over for dinner. And then I was like, let's just go in the living room and we'll film real quick. And they, they were sort of the intro to that video. None of that was planned. That was all spontaneous. So yeah, like you can only plan so much until it actually happens. And then when it does, you have to adapt. It kind of like racing itself, you know? So uh, in a ways it's, I I approach those events in the same way. Yeah, that makes sense. Sweet. Well, I'm super excited to see all those events you're going to cover later in the year. I definitely, I want to get more of the flavor. I've had, I've had Whitney on talking about Foco Fondo. I've had, Jess, Sarah, and Sam Boardman on talking about Last Best Ride. I'm always curious to just kind of see on the ground footage of how those events will go down and what the experience looks like. Because I think at the end of the day, most athletes who aren't professional athletes, you know, we've got limited time, limited budgets to get out there and picking the events that are going to be the right vibe, I think is important. Yeah, you know, and not every event needs to be documented in the way, say, Unbound is, because not every race is about even focusing on the pointy end, especially if it's a smaller event where people just kind of roll out. There's no neutral, there's no gun that goes, people just roll out and then they finish. They still ride hard. So I have to figure out a better way to tell the story because if I just focus on the leaders, or one guy or girl, that's just going to get boring. And because there's so much that happens behind that. Yeah. There's people on tandems and there's people on all kinds of weird, gravelly, custom steel, alloy, flannel, mustache, whatever. Like it's just, there's so much going on that I I, I need to be able to capture that as well. Yeah, so, no, I agree. I, I mean, I think I've I've done an equal part of like pointy end of the race racers and mid packers. And I know it seems to be a growing trend because I think at the end of the day, part of this quote unquote spirit of gravel is we're all participating together. So I do, I tend to agree with you that the sort of flannel shirt wearing mustached party pace athlete experience is every bit as valid to understand as part of, you know, what the overall event jam is going to feel like as the pointy end, in fact, probably even more so. Yeah. I mean, some people finish unbound in 10 hours and some people finish it in 20 hours. So for the people who are finishing in 20 hours, they had, they spent more time at unbound than the pros did. (laughs) Yeah. Now I, I, I remember back from my triathlon days at Ironman and thinking like, you know, you have the pros finishing in whatever, seven or eight hours. Then the person who's finishing in 17 hours that is such a harder day. And I think that oh, most yeah. of the pros would acknowledge that saying like, they don't think they could even do a 17 hour day. Yeah. And the pros are asleep and they have their feet up and they've already had a couple of beverages consumed. I don't know. I've been last in bike races before I've DNF'd in bike races. Uh, and I've been in bike races, road bike races where I've come in, 
I'm pretty sure dead last where they're like taking like the finishing barriers out and I just kind of like hide, <laughs> but <laughs> in gravel, you see like at mid South, they're celebrating and embracing whoever finishes last, like at unbound yeah. the XL winner, I think did it. And they finished on like a Sunday afternoon. They started on Friday. Uh, and they, they brought out everyone and sprayed champagne on them. And you just nice. don't see that at other yeah. events. I think that's the allure of the ultra endurance events that are prevalent in gravel, right? Because these are lifetime achievements to kind of do a 200 mile race or what have you. And yeah, everybody should be celebrated. Everybody should feel an immense sense of accomplishment for just having got to get across the finish line. Yeah. I met a, I met a volunteer uh, who was doing the finish line, like wet chamois butter washcloths, those yellow ones. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, where are you from? He's like, Oh, I'm from Florida. And I'm like, you came all the way from Florida to be a volunteer and you're not even writing the event. He's like, yeah, but being a volunteer gets you entry for the next year. So you're already, you're already doing prep well before you're, you can even do it because the lottery system is so random, but if you volunteer, you're guaranteed an entry, yeah. or if you're a vendor, you're guaranteed an entry and people, I forget travel just to volunteer. You would never see that. You would never see that at a crit no, as much as I love crit racing, or you'd never see it at a road race where someone volunteers a year early just to, <laughs> just to throw wet rags on somebody just so they can race it the next year. That just speaks volumes. Yeah, it really does. Cool. It's huge. Well, Brian, I appreciate you coming on and sharing the story. I'll make sure people know how to check out the content so they can explore the Velo worthy YouTube channel. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I think that there's a lot of room to grow, not in terms of traffic necessarily, but in the way people like you and me develop within the sport, like we're not, we don't have the advantage of being ex-professionals with a big following. So like if Peter Sagan wants to start his own podcast, we're just doomed. We just are. But I think we just grind it out. We're there. We're talking to people. We're learning and we're creating, I think, a great space in the sport to have voices like these. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be out here and talking to you because I just love what you're doing. And I, I love being able to share my passion for the sport. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks, Brian. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the gravel ride podcast. Big thanks to Brian for coming on the show and big thanks to him for everything he does at Velo worthy. I very much enjoy seeing his content anytime he's out there in the field Additional thanks goes out to our friends at Hammerhead and the Hammerhead Crew 2 computer. Remember, use the code THEGRAVELRIDE at hammerhead.io to get a free heart rate monitor with your purchase of the Crew 2 computer. If you're able to support the show, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride, or ratings and reviews are hugely helpful in our discoverability. So take a moment in your favorite podcast player, leave us one of those five-star reviews, and share your thoughts. I love reading them. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. Bye.